Cove Productions presents the Solo in South Philly podcast with your host and local legal whiz, Wit Knowledge, Mark Kachi. What's good, everyone? Welcome to the Solo in South Philly podcast. Our season one is called Law School Reunion. It's a remix with the homies from the Midwest side. Each episode, I'll be reuniting with a different law school colleague, and we will discuss what led them to law school, their law school experience, and what they do now. Our guest today is Jessa Gary. Prior to joining Isaac Wiles, Jessa learned the ropes of estate planning in her stepfather's law firm, where she worked her way up to partner. As the practice wound down, Jessa continued serving clients until she started a family of her own. And at that point, she transitioned her clients to a new firm, Aller Stallings, where she served as an estate planning associate for several years. And in that role, she counseled clients on estate planning, elder law, including Medicaid planning, and matters relating to the probate and trust administration in the states of Ohio and Florida. I met Jessa while studying abroad in Australia and New Zealand. She was a classmate of mine that fit in great with the group. She worked hard in class, but she was also willing to go out and try new things. In New Zealand, she was part of a group of us who took a multi-day hike across the Queen Charlotte Trek. I wanted to have her on as a guest because much like that excursion in the outdoors, her journey has required her to rough it at times. But as you will learn, she has persevered and now gets to reflect on this challenging but worthwhile journey. Let's welcome Jessa to the program. Hey, Jessa, how are you doing? I'm good. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about law school. Um, now, you are a little bit different, actually, than a lot of my guests from what I remember. A lot, a lot of my guests and a lot of my friends in law school, they had professional lives, had done things. Uh, they, they were moms. They were you know, married. You were, from what I remember, one of the youngest people that I knew at law school. I think you you must have graduated early and, and just come straight to law school. Is, is, is that the case? And what led you to law school? Yeah, so um, it I went directly from undergrad. I did undergrad in three years and took basically a summer off and went straight into law school. Um, so I did that in two and a half years. And uh, I graduated about, I think, when I was 21 or 22. Um, so I was a career student, I would say, at that point in time. I didn't have a previous life uh, prior to law school. Um, what led me to law school was a good friend of my mom's growing up uh, was an attorney in our hometown. I got to shadow him multiple times while I was growing up, and I was really intrigued with what he did, um, and that is what led me to uh, law school. Uh, how'd you graduate in three years, and uh, like, was the rush to get to law school like you were always set on on doing that? Actually, I wasn't. I didn't realize until my senior year or the summer before my senior year that I wanted to go to law school. I was majoring in uh, criminal justice. I thought possibly I'd go to the FBI or do something with that degree and realize that maybe that wasn't necessarily for me and thought back to the times that I shadowed my my good friend and realized that that was probably the next step for me um, and uh, went to a couple law school visits with him and he showed me around his uh, alma mater and um, I realized that that's ultimately what I wanted to do. 
Um, I went through so quickly just because I wanted to get it over with. <laughs> That's essentially it. it. It wasn't necessarily for me to go quickly to law school. It was just I wanted to get get done and get started with my life. Gotcha. And how did you end up picking the Thomas M. Cooley Law School? Uh, that was actually the only school I got into. I uh, had really good grades in school and a good GPA, but my LSAT score was abysmal, to say the least. I, I took it a couple times and didn't approve too much and Cooley accepted me and gave me scholarships. And um, I would say it was honestly probably the best decision I could have made. Did you take any prep courses for, for the LSAT or try to study on your own? I did a Kaplan review course, and um, I think that coupled with the amount of classes I was taking at the time was too much. I didn't get to devote as much time to studying as I would have liked. I think that was my downfall. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, the LSAT is a, is a very challenging exam. I, I, I think in some ways it's kind of unfair because I think there's some people that like naturally do well on it and don't have to study as hard. And then there's other people that study really hard and don't make those breakthroughs. And then there's some people that study hard and make those breakthroughs. And, uh, you know, I think for some people you need to put in the time to maybe understand the logic games and realize that there's a finite amount of tests and they're just changing the names and the activities or maybe, um, so, okay. So you, uh, you, you went to, you got into law school. When did you start and how old were you? When you started, I um, I started January of two thousand nine. I would have started. Okay. And I would have just turned twenty one. I think. Wow. Okay. So um, let me ask you this, and it it's kind of hard, I guess, for you to imagine what this would have been like, or put yourself in another person's shoes. But do you feel that a lack of like being in the real world and having even a year's worth of work experience, uh, you know, made things a little more challenging, maybe when understanding cases and they're, you know, you're getting into contractual subject matter of things. Do, do you think it would have been you would have had like an extra bit of wisdom had you worked for a little bit? I could see where that would have definitely been beneficial to me. Um, you know, a lot of our classmates had careers beforehand. And um, I, I do think that that probably helped a little bit with, um, you know, the cases and understanding contracts and, and whatever the situation is, just having that real world experience, I think definitely, definitely helped. But lucky for you, you got out with more time to pay your student loans back, right? Correct. <laughs> so what was law school like for you? Did you know what to expect? Uh, like tell, tell me about your first impressions. And so you're, you were from Ohio and then went to college in Florida and then came back to the Midwest or let's talk Correct. a little bit about yeah, that. I, I actually, uh, I grew up in Ohio. I actually started undergrad in Alabama and then transferred to Florida Atlantic and Boca. Um, and then after that graduated and came back to, uh, attend, uh, Cooley. Okay. Yeah. And then what was your first day of law school like? Do you remember? I don't remember that. That was a while ago, but I know I was extremely nervous. Um, I've heard, I had heard a lot of horror stories, uh, you know, about the Socratic method and 
standing and uh, addressing the class about cases that you have read. So that was a little nerve wracking. Um, I would say I was probably overprepared in that regard, just so that I didn't look like a fool standing in front of, you know, 50 plus people. Um, but it got, it definitely got a little bit easier each, each day that went on in that respect, I would say. Yeah. And, and what about exams? Was that, was that something that scared you? Uh, you know, I assume you, you know, in undergrad, there were opportunities to pad your grade. Everything didn't come down to one blow the whistle three hours, get it all in, you know, read it carefully. And what was that like? Yeah, that that was definitely uh, different than undergrad. Definitely not something that I was used to. I wasn't used to putting in that amount of time studying. Um, just like you said, it, it all came down to essentially one one huge grade. Um, you didn't want to waste a whole semester on, you know, one grade. So I definitely put in the work and spent weeks, um, you know, all nighters studying for these exams. And, um, but it, it still, I mean, still to my, the last semester it was still very nerve wracking. Those exams never got any easier and the, the prep for them never got any easier either. Yeah. Our, our school had the unique uh, system where, from what I remember, there was only one class, secure transactions that allowed you to bring your book in. It was all memorization. And I don't know about you, but I always had fears like, what if I just get in there and my mind is empty? Um, Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> but it did prepare us for the bar exam, wouldn't you say? Oh, yeah, no doubt. So what were what were your like memorization techniques uh, to get all this in? for the exams? A lot of it was just repetition. Um, you know, just going through outlines and just memorizing outlines that that's basically what I would do. And, and sometimes do flashcards for, um, you know, contracts and, and stuff like that, where we're learning just general terms and stuff that we needed to know. Um, but repetition is basically what it came down to. Yeah. The, the outline I think is the most underrated teaching mechanism. I remember I had a fifth grade teacher that that tried to get us to do it. And I think back and I, I was like, I really wish I knew this in undergrad or had my own system of doing it, especially like if you're taking a social science and you're dealing with hours of lecture, thousand pages of reading and this final exam that's coming up. It, it, it's just so great how you can just methodically like push things into a certain place. And then the way your memory works, like it almost goes down your outline, like, oh, we're talking about this. Let me get to this section. And then let me talk about these three things and methodically answer the question. Um, so that's, you know, you have little ones, but, and, and so do I, like, that's actually the one thing I want to teach my children at a young age is the learn the ability to outline because it will efficiently get you to study. Would you agree with? Oh, my absolutely. Thinking? Absolutely. Um, I outlined a little bit, I would say, in undergrad, but not to the extent that we did in law school. I mean, just a couple pages for undergrad, but law school, you know, you're talking 10, 15, 20 pages of outlines that you're going through. And I I wholeheartedly agree with you that that, that makes a huge difference in studying. Yeah. So how'd you do your first semester academically? I did fairly well. I don't remember what my GPA was, um, 
I think I got a mixture of A's and B's. Um, Were you disappointed and and figured you needed to make adjustments or were you happy and needed to continue with what you had been doing? Honestly, I was pretty thrilled at, at what the grades I got. Um, obviously I, I knew I could do better, but I was happy, you know, at least being the first semester under my belt that I, that I was where I was at. I was taking five classes, which, um, a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, I was proud of where, where I ended up that semester. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of people would ease into it. They would take three, some would take four, five would be the full load. And, um, it was a scary thing to know that like, you know, people are going to fail out. Um, people are going to be trying their hardest and going to fail out. And I think that's not really something that we've dealt with academically, uh, in undergrad, I'd see it a bit with people starting as engineers and ending up as, you know, business majors or something like that. But uh, pretty scary thing that knowing that, you know, people that you made friends with are, were going to leave involuntarily. Did uh, did you experience any of that? Like see some people have to go? I definitely saw some people, but not nobody that I was really necessarily close with or friends with. Okay. So... You're going through school, and uh, what made you decide to go to Australia and New Zealand to study abroad? I had wanted to study abroad for a very long time. Um, I'd wanted to go to somewhere not in Europe because I've been to Germany and England, and I wanted to go somewhere warm as well. Um, thankfully, that's that's what we got to experience. <laughs> it was our winter in Michigan and summer in Australia, and um, I was, it was kind of a last minute thing where I, I realized that that's really what I wanted to do. And I had the money to do it. And, um, I applied and I was waitlisted because so many people had applied for it. And I think either some people dropped out or, you know, I'm not sure what happened, but, um, thankfully I was given that opportunity to, to go. It was definitely a, an experience of a lifetime. I heard a lot of people would drop out because they had girlfriends or boyfriends, um, and, you know, they, they, they weren't having any of that. Um, yeah. And you were, you were, uh, relatively lower on the, uh, credits level, right? Like, cause there were a lot of people that it was their last semester. You were like, how do you, were you on the lower end of that? Is that why you were maybe towards the back of the list? That could have been, I'm guessing. Um, cause that would have been January of 2010 that we went. So I still had another two semesters. Okay. Yeah. Cause I remember them saying something like, you know, they wanted to give priority to people that wouldn't have another opportunity to do it. Um, so more credits you had, the more likely you were to get in. And then, like you said, some people, unfortunately weren't able to go. It is, I think it's the biggest, it shouldn't be a secret or, I mean, I guess it's not a secret, but why someone, if they had the ability to do it, um, would not take advantage of this. I mean, we were paying basically the same tuition. Rent was probably more expensive where we were at. And of course, you know, we're going to do fun things. So you're going to spend more money. But I think they gave us the opportunity to take out a little bit more in loans while we were there. And um, what an incredible experience. Why don't you 
say, share some uh, stories or what you have to say about studying in Australia and New Zealand? Stories. Um, gosh, I think one of my favorite trips that we did there was um, doing the the uh, hiking on the the mountain with the ice and uh-huh. Uh-huh. ice climbing. I think that was fantastic. Um, I personally didn't get to travel probably as much as you and a lot of the other, um, a lot of our other classmates did. I, I mainly stayed local unless we did uh, trips together, um, just for money's sake, but right. uh, that was definitely my, my favorite trip by far. So I made a, I think what I would feel was kind of a bonehead mistake that you actually, uh, you know, did it, I think, which was kind of the right way in Australia. Like, I guess I never did the math and I just assumed it would have been more expensive to stay at a hostel than it would be to stay at the student housing. And, you know, the student housing was fun and it was great to hang out with everyone, but school wasn't in session or there wasn't much activity there. And we were also, you know, a train ride away from downtown. But during the Australia leg of the trip, (laughs) <laughs> you were going to school and living in a hostel. What was that like? It was interesting to say the least. That was, that was the first time that I had experienced that before. And um, I had a roommate, Mike, who you just had on your show a yep. couple of weeks ago. And um, that was great fun. I mean, he, he kept an eye out on for me and, and made sure that, you know, I stayed safe and it was a safe place, but there were obviously some, sketchy individuals just based on, you know, the, the price that you pay for a hostel, but it was definitely an experience I won't forget. And being downtown and being a, you know, walk, walking distance to pretty much anywhere you want to go was fantastic. Yeah. The, so, okay. So was your room arrangement, it was two of you, two room? Yeah, we had one one room. We had two twin beds that abutted each other. Um, and then a fridge and a fan. And I think that was about, about the extent, <laughs> about the extent. Okay. Okay. So it wasn't the, you know, you're in this room with a bunch of bunk beds and people coming in and out at various times of the night and that sort of thing. No, no, it was no. just Mike and I, and then, you know, obviously we had a shared bathroom with pretty much the whole hostel, which was, that was interesting. I've never, <laughs> I've never had that experience before, but yeah, that, uh, that was, that was interesting. What about the other residents there? Did they come from all over? Did you guys? I think they, any of them? they were mainly from Australia or New Zealand. Um, I don't remember too many f- being from anywhere else. Okay. Okay. And then how'd you study in the hostel? I mean, I didn't, I don't think I put in as much effort to studying abroad as I did back home. And I don't know necessarily why that was. Um, oh, come on. You know, we, we, we made it work. Um, you know, it, it just, I, I wasn't as concerned, I think, with with my grades there as, you know, I would be back home. Yeah, well, I mean, I think we did take mainly electives. I think we took equities and remedies, which was the only, like, required course. They were supposed to go easier on us, but I think they graded us pretty harshly. I agree. Uh, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I mean, I think the study aspect, I, I, I remember putting in a few sessions, but I don't remember it being like the, the regular grind. 
No, I, I remember, I think Mike and I would go to like Starbucks or, you know, our, the local coffee shop and just study there, but it definitely wasn't to the extent that I would normally study. Yeah. Yeah. And then New Zealand, did you live, what, what building did you live in there? We lived, uh, the student housing there, the, you know, the apartments that they had. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think you were in my building. I don't remember. Um, but it was a really nice place, wasn't it? Yeah. Downtown. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Really nice. Um, you know, we had a full kitchen and, and all of that stuff. So yeah, it it was definitely a, a huge improvement from the, from the hostel. Yeah. So how would you compare your experiences in New Zealand versus Australia? Um, I would say they're pretty similar, although in New Zealand, I think I did a lot more outdoors stuff than I did in Australia. Mm-hmm. Um, we, me and a couple other um, classmates, I think you were there. We went on that huge hike. Yeah. Um, it wasn't, it wasn't Abel Tasman. I know Mike and I did that one after the program was over. I forget what ours was called. I forget too, but it was, it was long. Yes. And you know, it, but it was fun. I mean, it was something that I probably wouldn't have done on my own for sure. Um, but it was fun and it was go- gorgeous views. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah my, my favorite part of that trip was uh, when we finished, we, we were all, you know, sore and it was, it was long trip. We had to carry everything. Right. Um, beautiful. But we finished, it was like Easter Sunday and we got into town and we had like this nice hearty meal at a bar. And then I remember they were like, Oh, well, we don't serve beer on, on Easter, but if you order a meal, you know, we'll serve you beer. And then they didn't really care, but just, you know, talking about our trip, getting back to civilization, eating a good meal, drinking beers, talking to the locals, um, you know, trying to get our friend Luke to, to talk to girls. To, to, to talk to girls. Yeah. That was a, that was, that was a, that was, that was my highlight of that trick. So, okay. So you come back to Michigan after that and uh, you graduate and tell me about bar prep. Where did you decide to take the bar? Why? And uh, how did that, how was that experience? So I took the bar first in Florida. Um, My main reason for doing so was, if I didn't get a job down there initially, that maybe I would want to retire there. You know, I I like it down there. I went to undergrad down there. My dad lived there for a period of years. Um, so I took the bar down there first. I, I used Barbary mm-hmm. as my bar prep. And that was in-person um, and video classes that I did. Um, and that seemed to work really well. Um, and I was studying you know, obviously daily, you know, seven, eight hours a day, um, pretty much since I graduated. Um, and I took the bar in July and, um, found out my results, I think in September. So that waiting period was, it was a lot, um, not knowing if I passed and, um, but I, I did end up passing my first time around and, um, which I was grateful for, you know, taking that, taking that one exam, it, you know, it decides if you're going to practice law or not. And if you don't do it, if you don't pass, you're going to have to take it all over again. I didn't necessarily want to go through that. Um, Florida doesn't have reciprocity with anybody. So 
that was okay. another reason why I ended up taking that one first. Um, and I've heard the reason for that is they don't want a bunch of snowbirds coming there yep. and taking jobs away from their natives. I had in my class, I had a guy that was probably in his 70s, <laughs> mid-70s, taking the bar exam again because he was from New York and they wouldn't let him practice in Florida, which I thought was crazy. There's no way if I had been practicing for 40 or 50 years, would I want to take the bar exam again? Yeah. No. Yeah, definitely. So when you passed, what was that feeling like? Did did you appreciate the moment? Like, you know, or were you kind of like not as in awe of what it meant to you? Oh, no, I, I definitely appreciated it. it. I put in a lot of work, not only in law school, but studying for the bar and, and the hard work paid off. Mm-hmm. I was really happy about that. Okay, so you passed the bar, then what? So I was living in Florida at the time, um, looking for any kind of legal job that I could find. The market at that point in time was not the greatest for new attorneys, at mm-hmm. least down in Florida. So I ended up moving back to Ohio and ended up taking the bar in February of 2012. Wow. So you took the bar again? I took the bar again. So Ohio didn't have reciprocity with Florida either? No. Oh. The only thing, I, I was able to use my MBE score, which was nice, but I had still had to take the Ohio portion. Okay. All right. That doesn't feel like a complete waste then. Right. Because my next question was going to be like, you know, how, how do you, how do you get the motivation to, let me ask you this. Like, so you moved to Ohio, I'm guessing because of family, but did it seem like there were job prospects there? It seemed like there was more than there was in Florida. Okay. So you, you take it in Ohio. Uh, did you pass the first time around? Passed again. Yep. Did you take a course again or did you just study on your own this time? I took, I took another course. Um, didn't do in person, just did the videos this time, but d- studied just as much as I did for Florida. Okay. So you passed what month and what year is it at this point? So I took it February of 2012 and I think I got my results in May, April or May of 2012. Okay. And then what would you end up doing? (laughs) Um, So I ended up moving to North Dakota, actually, after this. Um, A former alumni from Cooley um, practices criminal defense in uh, Fargo, uh, and I have family up there. I was planning on working for him, doing some, you know, doing some work, attending trials and stuff like that. But it really never came to fruition, unfortunately. Um, I think he was, he either wasn't interested or he was too busy just to hand stuff off to me or mentor me. So I ended up doing uh document review work. I did that for about two years. Um, so would you been able to be admitted to the bar there? I did North get Dakota? admitted to the bar there. Okay. I, they, they could do, you could do it without uh, a bar, uh, taking a bar exam. Okay. Yeah, I, I had a friend. It didn't end up working out for him, but he had this theory that there was a shortage of work up there. And, you know, pre-COVID, 
they would do things online or they would cluster things like cluster dockets into one day and people would come from out of state and just, you know, drive around, do their work and then go back to Minnesota or whatever neighboring state. So he, he figured that, you know, there was a lot of opportunity there. Was there? I think a lot of it was like the oil and gas you okay. know, Western part of state. There definitely was a lot of that. Um, I was looking constantly for other jobs. I, I didn't thoroughly enjoy the document review work, um, but I never came came up with anything. So I did document review work for about two years. So let's talk about that. I don't think I've asked any of my guests about that. And that is something that a lot of people, some by choice, um, and but a lot, I would say not by choice, get into because it's, uh, you know, often the pay is not bad. And, um, you know, it, it does have its advantages. Tell me what what does document review consist of? So the, the type I was doing was um, on the computer. So it wasn't hand documents, but it was documents online. We were reviewing documents for either confidential information or privilege information. So basically, when someone gets sued, they're required to disclose documents to the other side, whatever they're, you know, whatever they're essentially requesting. And um, we go through those documents to see what, in our opinion, can be turned over to the other side. Okay. So you're looking through these documents and then are you redacting or are you saying, no, this can't be handed over type thing? Uh, there was some redacting, but mainly it was whether this is discoverable or not. Okay. And are we talking like, so basically we're dealing with big cases where discovery is so big that it has to be outsourced to a company, right? Correct. Yeah. A lot of the cases that are uh, the firm that I worked for dealt with was, um, mortgage-backed securities. So we were reviewing mortgages, loan documents, that sort of thing. Um, not not anything very interesting, in mm -hmm. my opinion, but um, long documents. Um, thankfully, the program that we worked with, you could input words and they would highlight those words. So you'd know that maybe these you need to look at these documents if these words are in there. Um, and if those words are in there, you probably shouldn't disclose those to the other side. You know, so that was nice. You didn't actually have to read the entire document, but we had keywords that would pop up. So we'd know, you know, what what we needed to, uh, whether they were responsive or not. And how do they track your productivity? Um, so it was based on the amount of documents you reviewed. So I think they wanted us to review... <laughs> an hour, maybe. Say that again. How many hours? Hundred an hour. I can't re quite remember how many it okay. was. I mean, it's pretty quick once you once you're in there. A lot of them are pretty similar, so you can click through them pretty quickly. And are you doing this remotely, or are you in a boiler room with a bunch of other people? Yeah, we. It, this was before COVID, so we we were in person in a secure facility uh, with a fingerprint tree and a key code and all of that stuff. And it was me and a group of probably seven or eight other attorneys. Did you guys bond um, over this experience or what, what was that dynamic like? 
hard to bond in that sort of dynamic because there's, I mean, the only talking you do really is, you know, is if you have questions on a document or if someone's seen something they want to make sure the group is aware of. Um, but I, I did make a couple good friends that I'm still friends with, but um, really hard to communicate in that sort of environment. There weren't happy hours where you guys all complained and talked about what you're trying to get into next or something? Uh, thankfully, we had Messenger, so we could we could talk on the computer. Um, that was our way of communicating with each other. But um, yeah, there were definitely some happy hours that were um, disgruntled employees complaining about uh, uh, complaining about the, the the process and document review itself. And are you, were you allowed to have headphones in? We could have headphones in. Okay. Uh, couldn't bring like our cell phones. Um, we could bring a CD player, <laughs> which I bought but you couldn't bring like an MP3 player or anything like that. That's how secure. And there's cameras in the room and, and everything. That's how secure it was. So, so do you know some albums by heart now? Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and how many hours a day were you working? Um, Nine or 10 typically. Okay. They paid overtime, so I would work a couple extra hours for overtime. Now, would you say that in, that did you benefit from that experience? Are you happy you did it? I don't know if I necessarily benefited from it. I mean, I don't really use anything like that in my practice now. So, you know, it, it did pay good and it was, it, I, I, you know, I don't know if I had another opportunity if I would do it again. Okay. Good to know. So how'd you get out of that then? How did I get out of that? Um, so my stepfather um, is an attorney in Ohio, and he uh, practices estate planning and probate. He got to a point probably around 2013 um, where he asked me if I wanted to come work for him. Um, and at the time... That wasn't necessarily something I wanted to do. I was happy where I was at, um, but uh, I got married in 2014, and my then husband said, "You know, let's let's go for it. Um, I'll move there with you, and I'll figure out something to do there. You know, I'll go to school and and do whatever." Um, so I started work with my stepdad August of 2014. And who was your Will's professor at Cooley? Who did you take? Horvath. Horvath. And that didn't inspire you to uh, to join the estate planning world? Because it's fantastic. She, she was, yeah. So I know you and I, if I remember correctly, we had business orgs with her, um, which I don't think was her specialty, but she did a phenomenal job there. Uh, but yeah, I remember having so. And, and I met my wife in her class and I, I recently found out that she just passed and she was a wonderful lady. Her name was Judy Frank, um, Professor Judy Frank. It was basically like a grandma teaching your class like she was. And I don't mean that to demean who she was because she was a you know, professional for years and was excellent. But she's so sweet and like good at how she taught the class. But one day she was out and um, Hor Professor Horvath came in. And man, I was like, 
this professor has stage presence, you know, yes. it was like, she was up there doing stand up. Like she'd have her coffee in her hand. She'd be strutting around and like, you know, Wills is, it can be a very dull subject and she made it alive. Um, so yeah, you know, did, 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 did she, did you have any good experiences from her class in law school? Oh yeah. That was definitely next to, um, you know, the criminal courses that we took, that was one of, that was one of my favorite classes. And it was mainly because of how, how interesting she made it. And I will say this, the one thing I appreciated the most about what she did was not even related to the subject and biz orgs. I don't know if you remember this, but she's, she's like, she calls on someone and she says like, oh, um, so you, you get a free trip somewhere. Where do you want to go? And you know, the, the kid goes anywhere, but here. And, um, she went off and I agreed. Cause I always subscribe to this. She was like, Michigan is amazing. You need to like, okay, Lansing's not beautiful, but like you guys aren't from here. You're going to leave here. Like go take a trip somewhere. So we, I think we had a long weekend and she says, look, if you leave the area and tell me about it, I will give you a pass and you don't got to get called on. I think it was, I think it was like a 4th of July weekend or something. So a lot of people went various places and proudly shared it with her and, and, and got the pass. And that's one of the things I, I, I think that our classmates miss out on a lot. They complained a lot about Michigan. They didn't go to the amazing places that Michigan had. And I really like that she almost kind of, force people to do that. Yeah, absolutely. I didn't get to travel as much as I would have liked to. I, I had been to Michigan prior to law school. So I had seen, you know, the lakes and, and all of that stuff. So I, I knew how beautiful it was, but I, I didn't get to travel nearly as much as I would want to. Okay. So you're working for your stepfather in, in his estate planning practice. And what, what were you doing for him to begin with? I was doing a lot of basically just shadowing him and meetings and then um, helping him with drafting documents. So what were the clientele like? Were they people that were older and, and looking for help or were they young people that were ahead of the game and looking to plan? So it was a little bit of bit of both, um, I would say, but mainly older people he would see. Um, his clientele mainly focused on family farms. So he had a lot of farm families that would come in for estate planning and succession planning. Okay. Did, did you start to like it eventually? Oh, I did. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really liked it. You know, it was one of those things you think I thought in law school initially that I would probably want to do criminal defense work. Just I did the Innocence Project and I thought, you know, maybe this is what I want to do the rest of my life. Well, you know, you get out in the real world and it doesn't pay very well and you get clients that aren't usually happy with you. Um, so I, I quickly realized that wasn't necessarily what I wanted, you know, in the long haul and um, estate planning, the clients, you know, make my job interesting. You know, it, it's all about the clients and um, you know, I, I'm happy to be able to help them with their estate plan or help them with probate 
you know, if someone's passed away and my clients are what make it interesting for me. I get to meet someone, someone new and interesting every day. Yeah. One good thing about estate planning too is the good thing is, you know, I tell people about what would I do, right? And it's criminal defense, bankruptcy, and family law. And they're always like, well, I hope I never need you. And yeah. it's it's true. I mean, like in my scenario, like you probably have a problem that you need help with. Um, with estate planning, like everybody you know could possibly need or should need your services. Absolutely. So you're you're not always dealing with people that are, you know, down and, and in need of help. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to help people that, you know, want to be helped, but they don't have a dire situation, you know, like a divorce or, you know, a criminal conviction or anything like that. So you're usually dealing with semi-happy people, you know, and they're, um, you know, they're they're doing these things in order to protect whomever, their spouse or their kids or whomever it is um, in the event something something happens. Okay. So let me ask you a question. I'm sure you get all the time. Why does everyone need a will? A couple of things. One, to nominate, if you have minor kids, you know, who who's going to be the guardian of those kids in the event something happens to you and your spouse. That's a huge reason for people to get wills in place if they have minor kids. Um, another reason would be you need to designate who gets your property when you pass away. Um, if you don't, then the state's going to set it for you, and it may not be who you want to get your property. Yep. You, you know what's another? You know what's another thing that I think people don't contemplate is because sometimes people might be like, "Well, I have nothing," right? And I always say, "Like, yes, but what if?" you die in some horrible way, right? Where you're not at fault and somebody's entitled to lots of money, right? W- wouldn't you want that, um, you know, to be disposed in the manner that you prefer? Absolutely. And people are like, huh, I never thought about that. I could get hit by a bus, yeah. you know? Um, th- there are horrible things that could happen to me. And Yeah, I agree. I, I-, I get that a lot where people say, well, I don't need an estate plan because I don't have any money. And um, that's not the case. You know, we've talked about the will, but the other two documents that people need the most while they're still living are your healthcare directives and your financial power of attorney. Without those documents in place, you know, your spouse or kids or whoever you want to handle those, those aspects of your life for you won't be able to do anything without a court order or guardianship if you become incapacitated. And that's just a process that no one should go through. You know, you, you should get at least those documents in place that avoid the need for a guardianship, which is timely. It's expensive. It, it's just something that can be completely avoided altogether. Yep. So yeah, let's, let's talk about those documents. So would you say then you're, you're your starting point for anyone that comes into your office. Um, you know, I'm trying to think in advance. I want to make sure everything's taken care of. Your starting point would be your will, which says I die. My property goes to these people. My executor is this person, your healthcare directive and different States have different things, but are different names and whatnot. Um, 
I think that the healthcare directive is what, like you get sick, this person steps in, this person who's designated uh, makes your important decisions. Um, and then you would outline certain wishes that you may have within that. And then financial power of attorney is similar, right? Where you get sick or incapacitated and then, you know, you may have bills you need to pay, you need other financial matters you need to take care of. Um, so yeah, why don't you walk me through each of those? Yeah. So, uh, in Ohio, anyways, the financial power of attorney, there, there are two different types that people can set up. One is called a immediate power of attorney, which means once you sign it, it's immediately effective. So whoever you name can handle your finances for you on your behalf, whether you're in the hospital incapacitated, or maybe you're traveling and you need taxes filed, or you need someone to pay a bill for you. Um, the other type is called a springing power of attorney. Um, and that one doesn't go into effect or spring into effect unless you're incapacitated. So I see sometimes younger couples go for the springing power of attorney just because, you know, they, you know, they just, they don't want their spouse or necessarily really kids to handle um, their finances when they're, they're more than capable of doing so themselves. You know, they don't want them necessarily to have that control over their finances unless they're deemed incapacitated. So that, that first option is that often maybe you have someone up there in age and they aren't sophisticated with finances or a lot of maybe immigrants that, you know, maybe English isn't even their first language. They really have no knowledge about how a lot of this stuff works and they trust their children. So their ch children would step in and make bank transactions and these sorts of things. Yeah, I, I see it a lot in older couples. Um or, you know, older kids that their parents trust their kids to make those decisions for them. Um, you know, they don't necessarily want their kids to have to go through the extra step of being, of deeming them incapacitated in order to pay a bill or, uh, you know, file taxes or do something like that. So that's definitely technically where I see those, those pop up. Okay. And then let's talk about the healthcare directive or whatever they call it in um, Ohio. Yeah, we, so it's called a healthcare power of attorney. Um, and you summarized it great. Basically, it states in the event you're incapacitated, you name these people to be your agents who make healthcare decisions for you. So these are things like, I, I want to be resuscitated. I don't want to be resuscitated. Um, I want an autopsy. I don't want an autopsy. Um give me life saving treatment. Don't give me life. These sorts of things, right? Yeah. So there's, there's provisions in our healthcare power of attorney that say, uh, you know, there's a provision that you can initial in that says, if um, I'm permanently unconscious or in a vegetative state and two doctors say, I'm essentially not coming out of it, that I don't want to be kept alive artificially. So if, our client initials in that box, they're telling their kids or their spouse or whoever that it's their wish not to be kept alive in that condition. So yeah. they're, they're expressing their wishes directly to their, um, their agents. And, and here's another thing that may, I think you'll agree with this. Another reason to have these documents is <clears throat> when you have a loved one that's, you know, sick and, and terminally ill, even if they know, 
that, um, you know, maybe they don't want to be kept alive or whatever. There's got to be this guilt weighing on, you know, the their next of kin for pulling that trigger. And that's guilt they got to live with for the rest of their life. Um, even the, even if it's not justly deserved by making that decision for them, they're not pulling the trigger. Now they're just carrying out your desires that you initial when you were of, you know, sound health and mind. Um, so I feel that that's a huge favor that you're doing to your loved ones in advance. Wouldn't you agree? Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, if, if they want to make that decision themselves and not have that burden placed on their their family members, we also have them fill out a living will. So that states in the event they are in that condition that they're expressing their wishes directly to the hospital and doctors that they don't want to be kept alive in that condition. So that takes precedence over the healthcare power of attorney. Um, and that alleviates the kids or spouse or whoever from having to make that pull the plug decision. Mm -hmm. Um, so I see, I would say the majority of my clients do the living well, but sometimes I, I have another camp of people that don't necessarily trust doctors to make that decision, even though it's two doctors and they have to come to the, the same conclusion. I still have people that would rather their loved ones make that decision. Let's talk about another thing, trusts. Who needs those? I think the most common misconception is it's well, for rich people. people. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, the lawyer answer is it depends um, on a lot of things. There's a million different types of trust out there. The one that I work most closely with is called a revocable trust. And there's a lot of different scenarios in which people set those types of trusts up. One, if you have property in more than one state, that will avoid probate and not just your home state, but the other state that you own property. Mm -hmm. um, if you have minor kids, we set up trusts to possibly delay distributions to those kids um, and have someone in charge of those distributions. So that's that's another reason why people set those up. Um, if you're in a second marriage and you want to control how much your second spouse gets you, you, and you have kids and you want to ensure that the kids still get something, but the, the spouse doesn't get everything all at once, you know, you can put some restrictions on, on that as well. So those are three of the reasons probate avoidance is number one by far yeah. uh, to set trust up. But those three scenarios are, are top in which people set up trust. And, and for those who may not know what probate is, and correct me if I'm wrong, right? Because what happens with a will is you have property, it's titled in your name, and you pass, you, you take this will, you hand it to the probate court, and then they look at it and they will then title property to the beneficiaries that you named. And there's a process involved, there's fees involved, there's time, there's timing involved with, with the trust title would pass upon your death to the beneficiary and you're, you're avoiding that whole court process. Is that accurate description? Right. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a loose definition of it um, because probate can take here in Ohio six to 12 months to, to go through. 
um, just depending on what's going through probate. But that's absolutely, you know, it's it's a court administered process to get out assets out of a decedent's name to the the beneficiaries under a will or uh, the next of kin under Ohio law. And with the trust, do you have to title in Ohio? Do you have to title all property into the trust name? Yeah. So you title everything or name the trust as a beneficiary on everything so that it'll it'll avoid probate on your passing. And then at your at your firm, do you guys assist with that process as well? We assist with at least the real estate and we'll advise clients on what they need to do with their, you know, their bank accounts and their investment accounts. Um, and we'll assist with whatever paperwork that they, they need us to assist with. Okay. Um, so Jessa, the time is yours right now to promote whatever you would like to promote your services, your firm, your cause, whatever that may be. Well, one of the causes that I, um, that is really near and dear to my heart is the Alzheimer's association. I, my friend that I referenced earlier in this podcast, um, the reason I went to law school he was diagnosed with early onset, I think at the age of 55. Um, obviously, eventually I had to stop practicing law and then went to um, went to independent living and then ultimately to a uh, memory care unit. And he since has passed away. He passed in 2020. Um, I have been involved with the Central Ohio Alzheimer's Association pretty much since that point in time once I found out he was you know, diagnosed with early onset um, and been involved with the, the walk to end Alzheimer's. And um, it's just, it's a great organization. And I hope the amount of uh, support that we get locally and nationally that we can hopefully find either a cure or something to slow the progression of Alzheimer's. Yeah, that's, that's a great cause. I mean, it is, it is a horrible condition to have and, Maybe I don't know much about it, but it, it it seems like there's still a lot to learn about it, right? Is isn't it true that like um you don't even know for sure somebody had it until they pass? Is it is that still the case? Or am I thinking of something else? I think there's probably at sometimes they can they don't find out, but for the most part, people will are able to find out now if they have um if they have it. Okay. So let's talk about the firm that you're at now. And, um, you know, one thing I like that I've seen you do from the distance is uh, you're blogging a lot on LinkedIn, right? Correct. So, yeah. To tell me about that. Um, just trying to get my name out of there, out in the public. I started with the firm that I'm at now in May of this year. So it's, it's pretty new. Mm -hmm. um, now I've been doing estate planning and probate for eight, over eight years now, but uh, not with this firm. So just trying to get my name out that I'm with Isaac Wiles, which is a, a bigger firm, obviously, that I'm used to. And we don't just do estate planning. We do, you know, uh, we do litigation, we do real estate, pretty much anything but criminal work. So anything but that we, we are capable of assisting with. So um just trying to get my name out and and hopefully educate some people on what I do and and why it's important. Yeah, is the blogging fun? It is. It takes time. It's 
pretty time consuming, but it, it definitely is. It's fun. Yeah. Probably the hard part about it is not the writing, but making sure I'm not saying something wrong. I'm not something saying something that could be taken out of context. Like what are the haters going to say when they read this? You know, that, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and w- was it you that like, cause I think it's very effective is uh, telling stories that, people will understand and relate to was it you that said like yeah prince died without a will and look what happened yeah i uh so what i've been doing in addition to those blogs is i have google alerts set up on my gmail that will send me news articles that either reference probate or estate planning or long-term care um so i go through those daily and see if there's anything interesting to post on LinkedIn. Um, so I, I, I do that. Haven't been doing it as much lately, but that's something that I, I do as well. Why haven't you been doing it lately? Did a oh, recent life event happen? Just, uh, just the birth of our, our daughter. She'll be three months on December 5th. Huh. How, how many kids do you have? That's, that's our second. And that's, that's it. That's all she wrote. Yeah, I, I think two is a good number. Um, are are you and Elena sticking with two? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll be honest, I barely, uh, like, I was so happy with the first. I just wanted a second because I had a sibling and I feel like that's the perfect balance. So, yeah, I got my two girls and hopefully no more. Um, you know, I have all I, that I need. And uh, how, how do you manage? How do you balance uh, the it's kids? It's tough. Um, you know, it was, it wasn't as bad with just one, but now there's two and it's, it's tough. Um, Thankfully, my husband and I, you know, we work pretty well as a team and um, I do drop off in the morning and he picks up in the evening. And um, I only see our oldest probably about an hour and an hour and a half in the evening because he goes to bed early. But, um, you know, on the weekends, we make it all about the kids you know, because we only have such limited time with them during the week. Yeah, that's, that's great. How, how, uh, how many years are they apart? So our oldest is two and a half and our youngest is, will be three months. So, okay. Okay. Yeah. So that's about the same distance that I have. I will tell you this, what I tell people when they have the second, I think that what everyone forgets is that you have the first and like, okay, maybe baby's behaving. I'll put baby in the corner baby is good. When you have the second, now you got to worry that child number one is now a threat to child number two. So you still have to play defense even when baby number two is chilling and enjoying life. Oh yeah. No, it's, <laughs> and it, that's absolutely accurate. You know, I, our oldest is great with our youngest, but he doesn't know his own strength and he doesn't quite understand what he's doing. So there's definitely Definitely still have to have the eagle eye on him. <laughs> I mean, that that's great that you're able to make it all work. Um, you know, hopefully your kids will will see it and appreciate it when they get older and then want to do the same, um, you know, when they reach adulthood. Um, for this part of portion, I mean, I, I think you've done some of this, but do you have, I call it, Explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old. Is there any legal concept that you'd like to explain to the audience or any myth that you would like to dispel? So the one that I was going to use, you already stole from me. I was going <laughs> to 
I was going to talk about, well, you know, I, I don't have money. I don't need an estate plan. That was going to be my, um, my myth. I, I think the other one that I could use would be, I hear a lot um, people say, well, I have a will. I don't have to go through probate. And that's not accurate. So um, like you said earlier, if someone dies with something in their name alone, you're going through probate for it. You know, whether you have a will or not, you're going through probate if you died with something that's in your name alone. So a will is not something that gets you out of probate. That's a trust. So just because you have a will, that doesn't mean you're going to avoid probate. Yeah, I, I got a couple I'll, that I'll give you that I think you can speak to. First, let's talk about intestacy and what it is and how it works in your state of Ohio. So intestacy just means simply that you died without a will. So what happens to your state? So it's set by state law. Um, and there's probably 15 or 16, a line of 15 or 16 people that would inherit if you pass away. So first it would go to spouse if you're married. If you're not married, then it goes to kids. If you don't have kids and it goes to parents, if you don't have parents, it goes to siblings. And then it, it just keeps going on and on and on, even includes stepkids ultimately. Um, but if you don't have anybody left, no next of kin, it goes to the state of Ohio, which I have not seen. I know it's happened, but I have not seen that happen. So one thing I'd like to mention about intestacy, that's also a selling point for your firm and estate planning services in general, is there there are surprises, right? Like maybe you have this idea of logically how the money should go. If there's no will, sometimes there's surprises. And I could be completely making this up, but I, I maybe you know about this, right? Um, I heard that um, Whitney Houston, right? She passed away. Um, you know, earlier than she should have. And then she had a daughter that tragically passed away um, as well. I think she had an, also had an accident in the bathtub. And because I'm, I'm guessing Whitney Houston had estate planning, but I don't think the daughter did, right? Through intestacy, the way it worked is that either it happened or there was a possibility of Bobby Brown getting that money because there was no estate planning in effect. And that is a surprise that, you know, that that is not, you would agree with me from what you know about Whitney, that would not be the testator's intent right? <laughs> for that money to go to Bobby, correct? Yeah, absolutely. And in those situations, usually what we do is we put a survivorship provision in our estate plan that says this person has to survive for X number of days in order for them to inherit if they don't, it's like they've predeceased. Yes. So, um, I'm guessing she probably had something like that in her estate plan, and the daughter just survived, just made it, and then daughter didn't have an estate plan, so it went to Bobby Brown. Hmm. And then here's another, I'd call it sort of a myth or something to dispel, and I think this is another reason that people avoid doing estate planning is that maybe they have the perfect will or the perfect plan in mind, right? Um, I, I want to wait till this happens, or I'm still thinking about this person and what I want done with this. 
and they delay this this act. Um, but correct me if I'm wrong. I mean, your will isn't set in stone, right? You can make this rough draft. It'll still carry out certain things, maybe not to the exact detail that you wanted, but it's something you'd always get out there, have it, and then change it later when when you get it perfect. But it's better to have something that you know describes your wishes than have nothing, correct? I wholeheartedly agree. I, I see far too many people come in, they know they need something, they know what they want, they just don't know how to structure it. And and I reiterate to them, it's it, it doesn't have to be perfect this first go around. You need to at least get something in place to protect yourself. And then once that's in place, we can fine tune it, you know, a month, a year, you know, five years down the road, but at least get something in place. Okay. And then I have a question for you. This is for my own selfish uh, reasons. Um, okay. So somebody has a will, right? And you're going to include all the property that you want passed in the will. But then people also have property that would pass outside the will, right? So let's say husband and wife own a property that's deeded um, with right of survivorship. Or let's say husband has a life insurance policy with a named beneficiary. Um, so should that will still talk about that property and say, um, you know, it's expected to transfer outside the will, or does that cause problems? Um, should that will address contingencies for if, you know, both parties become deceased at the same time and, and therefore who should go to next? What, what are your thoughts on that? We typically, unless the person wants to name a specific piece of property to go to a specific person, Generally, we just put the residue in there and it says everything go everything that I own goes to this person. Um, you know, but there are situations where there are multiple kids or you know, grandkids or something where the testator, the person that created the will, wants to either give a specific sum of money to or a specific piece of property. Um and so you, I've seen it both ways, but generally we don't, unless, unless the testator wants to include a, a specific gift to somebody. Okay. Good to know. Um, before we end here, any bit of advice you'd like to give to aspiring lawyers or people who just joined the legal profession? I, I just had this question asked me, our, our firm is doing a meet the lawyer blog post. And I'm one of the newer attorneys that they're doing a post on. And one of the questions was, what what's what's the biggest piece of advice you can give to people planning to be a lawyer? And besides studying, um, I would say networking. You have to be a good network or you're not going to survive in this industry. You know, you've got to be able to network with either prospective clients or referral sources to get to get those clients. You've got to be a little bit outgoing in order to, to make it in law, unless you're doing simply, you know, writing briefs and, and that's all you're doing. Um, you need to be able to go out there and, and get clients yourself. And are there any forms of networking that you advocate? Um, I like the more one-on-one -on -one going to coffee or lunches with um, perspective referral sources. 
I don't necessarily know that the bigger networking groups or the networking events or the bar association, those necessarily haven't worked for me in the past. More of the one-on-one has worked, but it's really whatever the person is, is comfortable doing. Gotcha. All right. Well, Jessa, appreciate you uh, taking the time uh, out of your busy schedule to join me and educate the audience on the wonders of uh, estate planning and sharing your journey with us. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Absolutely. It's great to cr- catch up and thanks for having me. All right. So to all my listeners, stay solid and click the subscribe button. And Piano Man, take us out. Need a lawyer? Are you having financial, criminal, or family challenges? Call or text the Mark Kachi Law Firm, 215-439-7899. I need-